Hello everyone, welcome to episode 1009 of Cold Wave Soundcheck. I'm Aaron Pollock. Cold Waves 10 is the biggest show yet, taking place September 22nd through the 25th at Metro, Smart Bar, Riviera Theater, and La Nocturne. Cold Waves is a celebration of Chicago's relationship with industrial music, the memory of a fallen brother, and a fundraiser for Darkest Before Dawn, a nonprofit providing resources and support for workers in the nightlife industry. For more information, including the full lineup and ticket links, head to coldwaves.net. This week, we are chatting with Friday Smart Bar performers Richard and Christina. This is Orphics.
Christy and I had met in high school and we immediately started a band that that was more in the vein of like my bloody Valentine, slow dive, sonic youth, stuff like that. At the same time, we were listening to uh, industrial music. We were going to raves. So we were kind of like immersed in everything that was going on at that time in terms of music. A friend of ours, um, he and I started experimenting with some synths. Well, I had just bought a synth. Christy had already been doing some work on on, uh, this Yamaha synth that she had. So we kind of put all this stuff together. I guess it was the summer of 1993 and we're just messing around. So Aaron Aaron and I, uh, my friend Aaron and I had some, you know, starting points. And then um, Christy joined in with with a, a sampler. We just got a like a Mirage sampler. She had these reel-to-reel machines that we'd found in like thrift stores. And she was getting like deep into tape loops and um, just experimenting with tape in general. So we'd made like a bunch of location recordings on there and she started um, kind of mixing that into what we were doing. But at that time it was like very much influenced by kind of like first wave industrial, SPK in particular. And um, also like what was coming out of Japan at the time, like Merzbau, MSBR, that whole kind of wave of, of noise. And then cold meat industries out of Europe. So those were kind of the, that was what was in our ears at the time. 93 was a very different time as far as discovering music. So how were you guys discovering stuff? Yeah, I mean, I, I think of those days and I still get excited, you know, just remembering like how thrilled we were about you know, discovering music at that time. And college radio was actually really a big deal, exposing us to new music. And then um, there was a program on like a local, well, like a Toronto um, TV station. It was like, I think Friday nights called City Limits. And they would just play videos just across the spectrum of like, you know, what was then called alternative music. So like, you know, the Pixies, um, Skinny Puppy, like Frontline, Nitzereb, like, you know, the acid house stuff. I was all just kind of on this show and on these radio programs. And um, we were just like eating this up. And then, yeah, of course, then, then you'd go digging in record stores trying to find this stuff. Then we'd start to rely on um, like mail order catalogs and and got into that whole world. And that networking through through that, through different distribu- distributors and just like corresponding with other labels. Because um, Aaron and I started off a label pretty quickly, like a cassette label called X Criteria. Mm-hmm. And that was like putting out our first Orifex releases and then various associated projects. And so that became a way of like finding the music because, you know, you would you would trade with people. You two have been really consistent with your output during your career. Have you faced, you know, any challenges over the years? Anytime, anytime you struggled, especially with not just the music itself, but the the music industry, which is so different today than when you started. I wasn't contributing to the music, um, just to the live performances between 99 or something like that and 2008. So 2008, when um, we, we did the first release for Sonic Groove Division, that was um, our like coming back together with music recording and but it was actually when we divorced so um in a way um when we kind of separated into other um our own spaces I think for me I was able to 
kind of contribute my own personality into the music again. You know, we were, we've always been good friends and we didn't divorce on a kind of a sour note or anything really. It, it was interesting to see when we, um, we had our, our own spaces, I think um, like before Rich just definitely did most of the, um, the recording part in that kind of um, that early 2000s work. But um, I think when we did come back to working together, I think it came together in a really great way. I'd say the last two years have been the real struggle, to be quite honest. You know, there's, there's been all sorts of points that, that have been difficult for, for different reasons, but um, the most challenging has been the last couple of years. And I think also not being able to, to perform, we both were commenting on how much that inspired us to kind of keep going. Like to, to be out playing and to hear other people's work and to talk to other people, that provided more inspiration than I realized, you know. So to be removed from that, because we're so used to being over in Europe and we have so many friends in Berlin and elsewhere, to, to be disconnected from that experience and that world was, was difficult in terms of inspiration. Just going back to some of the, the history as things have changed over 30 years, I would say, especially in the electronic scene, the, the gear has fundamentally changed. You're, you're talking a little bit about, you know, using tape loops and stuff like that. So tell me about how, how that evolved as technology changed and people transitioned over, you know, into more software-based things. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the trajectory for us. Like it was, it was, like I said, kind of like thrift store collections of pedals and the the tapes and you know whatever synths we could afford or or borrow and then as we had a little bit more income and software became much more um powerful i was starting to get more into software the computer part just kind of turned me off and before when we were making our first early recordings it was really hands-on it was more gear oriented and and that's, I'm a more like hands-on person, I guess. And when it got into more like the kind of focused computer work, and I, I, I do like working with the computer and Ableton and everything, but um, yeah, it just was less exciting for me, but the modular, the working with the modular and then getting back into like working with gear and experimenting some more, I just really got back into it in a big way with that. And, and I think it was really exciting. So we still do kind of like a hybrid, though, of like the laptops and software with the modular gear, drum machine, you know, whatever, depending on how, how far we have to travel and how light we have to have to do.
you have the most thorough Bandcamp page that I, I've ever seen out of any group. It looks like there's 93 releases on there. And Bandcamp does the thing where you're like, if you, if you want to buy every single thing that this band has ever put out, you can spend 350 Canadian dollars or something like that. So props to you for having all that stuff in there. Sometimes it seems like bands only have like their newest thing or a lot of older stuff is held up by different deals over different record labels. So I, I think it's cool that it looks like it's, it's a very thorough discography on there for you guys. Rich is definitely in charge of that. <laughs> yeah. I, I try to put everything on there. I possibly can. It's just nice to have it all in one place if people want to check it out. So do you have any fans that own every single thing on Bandcamp? To, to my delight. Yeah. A number of people have, have bought everything. Do, do they get any bonus for owning everything besides just the bonus of owning all your stuff? Uh, no, they ought to really <laughs> I ought to do something about that. Yeah. No, I mean, I guess it's whatever it's at a discount, but it'd be nice to have uh, a little extra perk added. I mean, Bandcamp has this thing now it's what's, I can't remember what they call it, but it's like um, almost like a Patreon style thing where you, where you can subscribe. Yeah. So I've been kicking around ideas for that, you know, adding things like, you know, incentives for people to, to do something like that or having exclusive material. But yeah, like I was saying over the last couple of years, that's one of those things that got kind of backburnered for the moment. Tell me a little bit about your, your latest release, which was um, a collaboration with Kareem as your skies are fading away. That was ages ago, like years, like I would say, I don't know, 2009, maybe. Maybe that's when we first started talking about it. Yeah, probably. We would be over in Berlin. We would, almost every time we would meet up with, uh, with Kareem, yeah. And he'd been releasing material from our good friend Dave Foster, a.k.a. Heron, Testy. So there's kind of like a little bit of a whatever family there. And uh, so, yeah, we talked about collaborating with him. And then I, th- I, I want to say around 2014, I think we sketched some stuff and then I don't know. It just never came to completion. So uh, during the pandemic, um, uh, Patrick started talking about finishing those up. So that's, we went ahead and did that. So it was kind of a process of setting things back and forth uh, until they were complete. And uh, with with that, his his original premise was sort of um, slower tempo than, you know, you generally find in a, in a techno context, at least at that time. Um, and so, well, certainly now and things are speeding up even faster. Um, so we want to go really slow and have some elements that kind of suggested, uh, the early days of asset house. Cause we were all talking about how those, those were so formative those years. Um, like I mentioned before the early nineties, that music, especially kind of the darker, moodier psychedelic stuff that we were drawn to. That's, we kind of want to evoke a little bit of that vibe. You guys are going to play at cold waves this year. It seems like, at least for now, the, the world is is opening up and moving on and, and things are getting better and people are able to, to tour again. So are, are you planning more shows this fall? Are you working on new music? What, what's going up? What's coming up for you guys for the next few months? Uh, there's some shows. Um, we play in Detroit and Toronto this month. More stuff in the summer and fall, but it's it's certainly not the kind of schedule we had prior. For a number of reasons, we're kind of like slowly getting back into it. And yeah, hopefully finishing up uh, a lot of studio material that that we have so much stuff that's like half finished or in the works. So it's really, really nice to, to finish some of that. 
a lot of stuff that's uh, like almost there. In particular, all right, we had, um, in addition to our Orfix, uh, the 12-inch release that we're hoping we were trying to get done ASAP, we have a collaboration with video visual artist Patrick Trudeau that um, we're doing a presentation for Mutech in August, but um, we had done a, a special performance that we are hoping to put into um, a release, which I think will be a really great release if we can um, get around to, to finishing that up and getting it out. It was um, designed to work with Infrasound, which is a sub-audio speakers. So that'll be the performance part that we're doing um, for Mutech. I saw that you've even played in China. I feel like I haven't talked to a lot of other bands on the show that have played out in China. That was amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's a different feel. I mean, I think it's like maybe 15 years or so that like techno has been sort of a phenomena there. Yeah, so that's a very different feeling, right? Like the people are kind of like still discovering the music. It was different in each city. We were in in Shanghai and Beijing, thank you, uh, and Macau. They were all they were all quite different. But yeah, generally, I'd say like a little bit smaller crowd sizes than in Europe, but certainly very enthusiastic. So that was that was really cool. And just to obviously to just be over there and experience those cities and and the culture, it was, I'd say like the most strikingly different place that we've ever been like even compared to japan japan has some more familiar elements whereas china was more of a just sort of awestruck most of the time the people there like in each city that we were there they were just so excited to kind of show us their city as well too and we um, just met some really amazing people and had just the the times outside of the show um, talking to other artists and musicians and club owners and um i think that part was was really fun um as well
On this episode, you heard Bare Life, Zero Hour, and Revolt and Love. Orphix can be found at orphix.bandcamp.com. Our opening music is Euthanasia by Accumination. Our closing music is Messiah by Splinter Group. Subscribe to the show on Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcast app. Join us next week as we chat with The Foreign Resort. Our closing segment each week is dedicated to the inspiration for Cold Waves, Jamie Duffy. Here is Dana Parker sharing another one of her memories. He even gave me my love of new rock boots. Stomping around on the stage in the new rocks. He, he just, I just loved watching him perform. He, he, he just loved performing. You could tell he just loved performing. Just standing up there stomping around in his new rocks. I have three pair and every cold waves, I wear one of them very, very intentionally.